Welcome to Africa Calling, a weekly Africa-centered podcast on news and features from around the continent by our correspondents throughout Africa. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of the Africa Calling podcast on October 15th, 2021. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. We have a number of stories from our correspondents on the African continent this week, plus an interview with a Zimbabwean investigative journalist from the sidelines of the Africa-France Summit in Montpellier. In this episode, you'll hear about some of the challenges for students going back to school in the Anglophone region of Cameroon, where a separatist war continues. And our Ghana correspondent looks at one Ghana-owned business that provides fresh, healthy, and homegrown fruits and vegetables to consumers. And finally, don't forget our special song at the end. Africa Calling. In Cameroon, reports indicate that a student was shot in Buya on Thursday, sparking a riot. Teachers and students in the southwest region of Cameroon have returned to school already over the past month in big numbers, but this is one of their concerns. Some students had stayed at home for the past four years without going to school. Armed separatists had called on the Anglophone population to stay at home and not attend school. Although the crisis is still on, some parents have showed willingness to send their children to school because a four-year education break is detrimental. Africa Calling's Batata Boris Karloff is in Buya and has more on the return to school in the southwest region. You have three seconds to reach your classes. Three seconds. <laughs> Secondary school students have been back at school for a month. They continue to attend school despite the Anglophone crisis in the northwest and southwest regions still dragging on. At Government Tenika High School in Boya, students are running to class with their uniforms and bags as discipline masters stand by the school gate, making sure students are not late for classes. In order to ensure that schools for the 2021-2022 academic year runs without a hitch, officials in the education sector have put several measures in place. This includes organizing seminars to give teachers updated materials. Statistics from the Ministry of Secondary Education revealed in the Southwest region, 85,800 students were in school during the 2020-2021 academic year, which is an increase from 62,300 in the previous 2019-2020 school year. The Anglophone crisis started in 2016 with English teachers and lawyers making several demands from the government, but the government responded with force. Security officers were deployed to crack down on teachers. The leaders of teachers and lawyers were arrested in 2017. That led to the calling of school boycotts, and students, teachers who were caught going to school in these two regions were abducted, some maimed, others killed. And in November 2017, Cameroon government declared war on those who advocated for secession from the French-speaking part of the country. The conflict continues. Some teenagers were forced to drop out of school because of the crisis. 18-year-old Eposimboa admits that the crisis has affected her education. Yes, it did affect me because um, before the crisis, I was going to school very effectively. And I was busy with schoolwork, apart from helping my parents at home with little chores. But when the Anglophone crisis started, um, I had to drop out of school because of the because of the inner out running and so on. So while in the house, I got engaged in activities that if I was going to school, I wouldn't have got engaged in. Like for example, right now I have a kid who is two years old, and I think this is as a result of the anglophone crisis because if I was at school, I would be busy 
learning and my attention will be like I'll have like school stuff to worry about but while at home I was ranting around and giving my attention to to things that aren't relevant. Aside from individuals who have taken up initiatives to assist those internally displaced and underprivileged, the government of Cameroon has also been making efforts to provide immediate needs of those internally displaced. Tilarius Atia is a PhD candidate in the University of Istanbul and the University of Boya in the field of political sciences, explains some of the government measures. Um, I think this, the Anglophone crisis started uh, ill-prepared. Uh, the school boycott that they used at the beginning of the crisis in 2016 was supposed to be a short-term measure. Something that was supposed to be a short-term measure became a long-term measure. Uh, children were left out of schools, children were maimed, they were kidnapped, teachers were killed, and even now teachers, they are not, they are not safe because there are mixed signals. There are some group of separatists who say school should resume, uh, that school should not be targeted. But at the same time, some of these separatists are occupying schools. Their camps are in schools. Uh, proof is that when the military has uh, been able to, uh, to dislodge some of them, we've uh, discovered that they were uh, in schools, they were uh, holding captives in schools. Uh, this, was, this is the case in Libya, where we've seen images and footages uh, showing that separatists are using schools. And other reports have also shown that separatists use schools as their hideouts. Uh, just like the state forces also in some cases have used hospitals and other public places uh, as their camps. So uh, it, it's a confusing war. Uh, at one point, uh, they say we should go to school. Others say we should not go. Uh, at another point, they say there should be community schools uh, and not government-run schools should not uh, go operational. The call for a school boycott by separatist fighters made teachers and students a target. The situation forced some teachers to abandon their duties. Bessem used to teach in Moyukam, one of the towns in the southwest region, hard hit by the conflict. I'm no longer seen because of the crisis. We're in Moyuka subdivision, where the crisis was so bad. So we're going on, we're going on. The villages were not going. But at one time, we just saw boys from somewhere. They were coming to school, sending away the teachers and the people. So we became afraid we could not come again. We're waiting to see that. It will not happen, but since then, things have just been the way they are, and we are just sitting at home doing nothing because we fear our lives. Although some communities have mobilized local security, teachers who are working in the southwest region have also devised coping mechanisms. Claudia Lukong teaches in a secondary school in Batokelimbe. It's excellent being a teacher here. I teach in GHS Batokelimbe. It has not been easy. It has not been easy, the, the, the political situation that we know, but we brave the odds. There are days you have to like camouflage, wear something that nobody will be able to detect that this is what I'm doing. But you, at the end, you are proud of what you're doing. There has been massive mobilization for the 2021-2022 school year in the restive southwest region of Cameroon. Atia, the Boya-based political scientist, makes meaning of the current situation in the region. Parents who have kept their children out of school for the last five years have seen how detrimental it is because a child who uh, went into secondary school five years ago is now into early first year of high school. And the parents who have reflected should have seen that they need to conquer fear and send children to school. We've seen success stories like in Kambe where the community has been able to protect the children to go back to school. 
We've seen success cases in Limbe, in Boya, and some of the separatists are also preaching that they need to go back to school. We've had Eric Tato, one of the kingpins in the uh, separatist struggle, said, well, this is somebody who is known to have been preaching memes and of children and, and school children. But this time he says that, no, the strategy has to change, that children should not be taken ransom. So there's need for them to change the strategy and allow the children to go back to school. The new academic year has kick-started across Cameroon, while the anglophone crisis is still on. But the increased awareness of the pitfalls of not educating children has pushed parents, especially those in urban centers, to send their children to school. Reporting for Africa Calling, this is Batata Boris Kalov in Boya. Africa Calling, produced by Radio France International. At the Africa-France Summit in Montpellier, France this month, youths and civil society activists converged for one day to call for better governance and the restitution of African art from French museums. Some, addressing French President Emmanuel Macron himself, called for an end to France's paternalism, corruption and lack of transparency on the African continent. On the sidelines of the summit, we spoke to Zimbabwean investigative journalist and filmmaker Hopewell Chinono, who was arrested earlier this year. We asked him how Zimbabwe is coping with COVID-19 and if journalists are able to practice their craft amidst a repressive media environment. And the state of affairs for journalism in Zimbabwe is really bad. Uh, journalists are afraid. Uh, journalists are afraid of reporting, especially corruption. Mm-hmm. I was thrown into prison three times inside six months last year. And this year in January, and they get to you and pick you up for things that are so frivolous, and sometimes they use laws that do not exist to arrest you, and you will not get bail, and you're thrown into prison for about 45 days. So the young journalists are now scared because they're thinking that if they can do this to people like Hopewell, who are internationally known, what about us? So a lot of stories are not being reported because of the fear element that has been instilled into journalists. And, and one of the major stories uh, that's very topical that you reported on was the fraud that's been taking place in terms of contracts for COVID. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why the government was so upset? So what happened was there was a 60 million US dollar facility uh, for COVID-19 to buy PPEs and to buy gloves for nurses and doctors and that is the fund that was being looted. Um, political elites in ZANU-PF and the government, what they would do is that they would get a contract without going to tender, and uh, they would buy, for instance, gloves at 65 cents, and then they would sell them for $28. Uh, that's a profit of uh, $27.55. That's ridiculous. And this is in a country where the biggest hospital right now, as we are speaking, does not have intravenous paracetamol. Uh, it only has two maternity theaters built in 1977. Only one is working. 2,500 women die every year trying to give birth. That is the tragedy, and that was the background of my reporting, trying to show um, the citizens that the money is available, but it is being looted. When you're saying that the money is being looted, how is this in terms of COVID right now? We had reports that people are dying in the parking lot of, of, of hospitals, not only in Harare, but also in Bulawayo. Yeah, each time the, the waves would come, they would be deadly uh, because we don't have enough facilities to take care of people. And uh, our citizens um, 
7.9 million of them live in abject poverty, so they don't have the funds to pay for private facilities. But in terms of vaccination, the government has tried. We use Chinese vaccines. Uh, unfortunately, they are not recognized internationally. So when we travel, like I've done, we have to quarantine for seven days and it costs a lot of money. And this has been because of the geopolitics. Uh, the government of Zimbabwe prefers the Chinese vaccines. They've even turned down at some point uh, free vaccines which are coming from the West. Um, but in terms of uh, the PPEs, it has been really difficult for doctors and nurses because sometimes they will get a mask and they wear the, that mask for a 12-hour shift and sometimes they will come back to, to, to work the next day and have to wear the same thing. The money is available, but it is being misused. If you look at the uh, procurement of medication itself, it's not available in hospitals. People die of easily treatable diseases. And if you look at complicated diseases like cancer, the machines are not working, they are not being serviced, and doesn't cost a lot of money. It costs you know, less than 50000 to do all this stuff. Zimbabwe has got only six central hospitals. Uh, that's the, the biggest hospitals that we have. Uh, they cost only 50 million US dollars to run without uh, making sure that you don't have shortages. But um, the government is failing to do this yet. 100 million US dollars worth of gold is smuggled out of the country every month, which means what could run our central hospitals for two years is being stolen every month. How do people feel about the state of affairs right now in Zimbabwe? Um, the citizens feel helpless um, because there's nothing much that you can do. Uh, this is a government that rules not through the rule of law. Um, if people try to protest, which is allowed under our constitution, they're beaten up, they're thrown into prison. I was thrown into prison for merely reporting that there's going to be a protest. I'm a journalist, but those journalistic privileges are not uh, accorded to us by the government, yet they are accorded to us under the constitution of Zimbabwe. The one thing that Menangagwa said when he came into power was Zimbabwe's open for business, but it seems that actually the doors are closed. I guess Zimbabwe was open for business, his kind of business, which is repression, uh, the use of violence, uh, killing protesters, throwing journalists into prison, throwing critics into prison, um, dismantling the opposition and creating his own uh, fake opposition, um, removing elected members of parliament within the opposition ranks from parliament. Um, and that's the kind of business that has been happening to Zimbabwe. But in terms of human rights, the, the, what he promised when he came to power after they removed Mugabe through a coup, uh, we have not seen that. In fact, the human rights situation is now worse than what it was when Mugabe was removed. And that's a terrible indictment if you're worse than Robert Mugabe. Check us out on Twitter, Africa underscore underscore calling. We're at Africa underscore underscore calling. And now from Ghana. Leaving a secure job for one with so many uncertainties is a gamble most people will not take. But one female Ghanaian entrepreneur chose the former. Catherine Crobo Eduse quit her banking job of seven years to venture into agriculture, an area she had no knowledge about. Twenty years down the line, the company she founded is not only the leading independent provider of fresh fruits, herbs, and vegetables in Ghana, but also empowering smallholder farmers and securing sustainable incomes. 
RFI's Pearl Akanya Ofori went to find out how this agripreneur is impacting the country's agricultural sector. Seated in her office in Bachuna, a suburb of the Ghanaian capital, Accra, Catherine Krobo Iduse is going through a pile of orders for the local market. Her company, Eden Tree, produces fresh herbs, fruits and vegetables and distributes them to major supermarkets and catering firms. Catherine capitalized on a growing demand for freshly packaged herbs, spices and vegetables in Ghana after her return from the United Kingdom in 1996, where she lived for 14 years working as a banker. I started Eden Tree out of a need because um, I lived in the UK and then I had my two children very close in age, they were almost like twins, struggling with childcare and not being able to work just made me decide to come home. Uh, and then when I came home, I didn't want to go back to the formal space, uh, which was in banking. So. Being at home and taking care of the children, drop them off at school, there's nothing to do. And I desperately needed something to do. Catherine began the business in 1997 with £200 of her own savings and used just two acres of a family plot to grow her first herbs, which sold out earlier than she anticipated. So I asked my sister-in-law in the UK to send me literature on how to plant aloe vera. But somehow she sent me literature on how to plant vegetables and herbs. So I got it and I started, I studied it and I tried it and it did beautifully. I took just a serving tray, which I arranged the herbs, packaged it. And then when I took it to the only supermarket in town, which was then Patsons, the manager looked at it and said, okay, I'll display it. If it sells, I pay you. If it doesn't sell, you come and collect everything off the shelves. The next day when I got there, everything was gone. Later, as her business expanded and demand grew, she invested in more farmland across the country. One of her farmlands is located at Isuchare, about 94 kilometers northeast of Accra. Here, farmers grow lettuce, cucumber, carrots, spring onions and spices on this 12-acre farmland. 43-year-old Samuel Lano is one of 50 beneficiary smallholder farmers who works on this plot. The farmers are supported with soft loans and training for their work by Catherine's company. Samuel has been working with Eden Tree for 23 years and says his standard of living has improved in so many ways. She has been helping me and other farmers here a lot since we started working for her. She provides all the tools we need for work. We are able to make an average of $2,000 a month. I am a father with four children and working with her has made it easy for me to take care of my family. I have also been able to build my own house from profits I made working here. From the farms, the fresh produce is transported back to the main depot in Accra, where sorting, cleaning and final packaging is done.
Akosia Kunedu Yadom is a certified Ghanaian nutritionist at the Greater Accra Regional Hospital. She explains why locally grown vegetables like the ones at Catherine's company should be the preferred choice over imported ones. Once something is being imported, normally something would have to be done to it to understand, to make sure that the shelf life of that item is prolonged. If I have something that is fresh and it meets the same standards, like what is being brought from outside, why don't I go for what is available here? Because they will definitely find their way into the market will sit on the shelves in the supermarkets and we will be eating what we are growing and at the end of the day it will send some revenue for us as a people according to data from the health and food security watch ghana spends over a hundred million dollars on the importation of vegetables annually most of it coming from its neighbors togo ivory coast and burkina faso including South Africa, Europe, and Asia. But with local entrepreneurs investing in the production of vegetables, not only would demand be readily met, but the country will also save some foreign exchange to meet other needs. Pel Akanya Ofuri, Accra, Ghana. Find us on your favorite podcast platform app, including iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. We're almost at the end of our program, but we have music maven Alison Hurd in the studio. Hi, Alison. What song do you have for us? Hi, Laura Angela. We've got sounds of the Sahel this week. Some great West African artists have joined forces on the Sahel song, which has just been released. It was written and produced by Marley's Vieux Faka Touré. Wow. It features, yeah, other great talent, Amadou and Mariam, Songoy Blues and Basikou uh, Kouyaté. Uh, from Mali also, Umuge from Senegal and Tal National from Niger. So this song celebrates the Sahel's really rich musical culture and tradition. Now, it was all a UN initiative. It's come from the UN's Humanitarian Affairs Office. And it's about drawing attention to the crisis in the region. As you know only too well, LA, there are now about 29 million people in need of life-saving aid and protection in the Sahel. That's 5 million more people than last year, according to the UN. And as the song says, the region is also on the forefront of climate change. At the same time, it's an upbeat song and it's a reminder of just how resilient the people are in the Sahel. They say, we're rising up, we will not be defeated. Music is the best way to get messages across without hurting anyone, says Vieux Faka Touche. So you can listen to the song on SoundCloud for free and also obviously on your podcast. And for those who can, also make a donation to Relief Web to help with the really important humanitarian work the UN is doing in the region. I hope you like the song. Excellent. Well, thanks for listening to Episode 4 of Africa Calling. We'll leave you with the fabulous sounds of the Sahel. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. Goodbye for now. Notre région, le Sahel, est en première ligne du changement climatique. La crise bouleverse la vie de millions de personnes. Elle attise les flammes du conflit. Elle déracine les familles. La violence et la faim menacent des millions de personnes. Mais les communautés se lèvent et ripostent. Nous ne serons pas vaincus. Ensemble, nous pouvons changer les choses. Yeah, my 